Good morning. The, our topic this morning is Deuteronomy and authorship. Uh, I'm sure many of you lost sleep last night uh, on this very question. It probably keeps you up night after night wondering, did Moses write Deuteronomy? Uh, I'm, I'm sure that that is a major uh, life crisis question. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, I think this is an important question. Um, I'm not going to try to bring us to a clear answer this morning, but I do hope to take us down a path that helps us think about these kind of questions. Questions where what critical scholarship says and what biblical faith say seem to be completely at odds. And what do we do about those kind of things? Um, so... And uh, so two reasons maybe to, to break this down of why I think this is a really important topic is one is because it's really hard to find careful scholars who enthusiastically affirm that Moses wrote the entirety of Deuteronomy. That it's, it's tough to do. Uh, whereas many would contend that Deuteronomy was something of a deliberate or pious fraud. So the second reason is because that and I was saying this before, is that if we go along with the skeptical position that puts Deuteronomy as a pious fraud, late, kind of not at all written by Moses or connected to Moses, then it directly puts us at odds with um, not just the Christian tradition, but what Jesus says and what much of the New Testament says as well. And so I think in a lot of these things that we see that whether it's the intended goal or not, the effect of some of these critical positions um, is that there's a wedge driven between the historical person of Moses and the book of Deuteronomy. And that scholars can claim that, um, that that severs any bond that Christians might have to meaningfully refer to the book as Mosaic. Um, and so it seems, again, as I was saying, that we're left with a choice, either to embrace kind of thoroughgoing skepticism or to hold to Christian faith without any look to history and without any look to scholarship and critical findings. So it seems like this is a dilemma uh, that I hope that we can at least begin to think of a middle way to engage in, in these kind of things. Uh, I know if some of you were here a little bit over a month ago that I think Harvey told me that he gave a lecture on uh, authorship of John. And so I guess that at some level that you're kind of primed for these type of questions. Um, so uh, my my hope this morning is to bring a general awareness to the issue at hand and also to chart a way forward that can affirm, that can affirm both the value of historical study and historical um, research as well as the trustworthiness of the Bible. So I want to be able to try to navigate a middle way that both affirms historical study and shows its value in place, but also adheres to the total trustworthiness of Scripture. Um, for me, as I've looked into this question and done, done study, I spent a lot of uh, last semester trying to research this, that even as different people were pressing the Bible in different ways and trying to press it to say, no, it's wrong, it's incorrect. It's not factual. Um, that this didn't destabilize my faith, uh, but even made it stronger in what the Bible is and what God's given us. So I hope that even though we're not coming to kind of rock solid conclusions this morning, so spoiler alert, there are no rock solid conclusions. That um, my process in this has affirmed my faith rather than destabilized it. So. Uh, Here's a little bit about how I got interested in the topic. I was in, last semester I was in an Old Testament his, uh, history seminar with Phil Long, 
and um, we read a lot of different perspectives on the Old Testament history. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that the basic contours of the Old Testament story were hotly contested. I, you know, I, I knew going in, oh yeah, there are plenty of people that don't believe in miracles and may not believe in divine inspiration, but certainly the basic contours of the Old Testament history are, are assumed. And the more and more reading I did, seeing that that's completely rejected, that even there are people saying now that they doubt whether um, there ever was a united kingdom under David and Solomon. And so these are, these are major questions, and this is like a, a very different milieu than um, what, as a Christian, one might expect in reading the Old Testament and kind of owning this as history, as not just the story of our faith, but true stories um, of what God has done. So as I was reading, um, and one of the things that came out consistently is that the books of the Bible um, were often seen as works that were fabricated in order to undergird a political or religious motivation. And so they weren't necessarily telling the true story, but they were there in order to prop up a regime or a power group or something um, as a way to push their agenda forward. And this was much the same in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, many held that it not only that the book not only was significant in uh, the reforms made under King Josiah um, in the eighth century, but that actually that the book was written for that purpose. That it was written so that Josiah could discover something in order to base his major reforms on. So. You know, which is much different than how I believed and how um, kind of probably what most of us have have grown up believing that you know Moses wrote it, Joshua cherished it, David meditated on it, and this was and this had been a book that had been significant in, in the, for the people of God throughout ages, um, but that simply wasn't the case for many many scholars. Um, so. Kind of to illustrate this, that there were the kind of the two different positions on the left being kind of a uh, a typical uh, Christian position that that was substantially written by Moses, or maybe around 1200 BC, versus a more critical position that it was a pious fraud. Uh, and here are some of the reasons why people would say that it was a pious fraud. Uh, one is that they see the clear, and most of the text will be bigger than this. This text is going to be a little bit smaller. Uh, but people would say, well, it's clearly connected to, to Josiah's reforms, so it must have been that he was the one or his party was the one that created it. Um, uh, also is that, um, and this is an interesting argument, that people would say that sophisticated writing wasn't really possible until the creation of an urban elite. So comparative cultures indicate that um, often writing didn't take place until there was a sophisticated urban center where scribes could begin writing. And so, by these scholars would say, well, if if Israel wasn't really centralized into cities until maybe the David-Solomon time period or after that, then that's the earliest that any kind of substantive writing could have happened. At least that's how the argument goes. And then the last thing would be that there are some laws that reflect late concerns. Um, so some people would read it and say, there's no way that Moses before the people went to the promised land, could have written this. I mean, the t there's talk of kingship. Um, really? What, were they already expecting a king? There is seemingly that their fingerprints of the exile put in there. Like, how would he know about the exile? And other things like that. And so people who 
what's read it and say, oh, well, clearly it must be a late document. It must be Josiah's reign or after that or maybe even into exile. Anyway, those are, those are the arguments. So we're not going to deal with them head on, but I think we're going to look at them in a different way. Uh, so, but why would, why would we say as Christians or as people who want to uphold the trustworthiness of Scripture that it was written by Moses? Uh, one is that Jesus refers to the law of Moses several times, and so it's seen as kind of when Jesus is referring to the law, to the Pentateuch, that it's of Moses, that it's not of Josiah or of someone after that. It's of Moses. So that obviously that's important. Uh, there are other New Testament witnesses that affirm this. Uh, Hebrews 3, for example, talks about Moses a great deal, um, affirming Moses as a true historical character and who had ostensibly responsible for um, the book or the books. And then also, and this is a really important one, and this is part of what got me interested in the topic, is that Deuteronomy as a book has a lot of self-attestation that it was written by Moses. And so we're going to cover some of these more, that it that it does it doesn't just purport to be oh that of course Moses probably wrote it like for example Genesis doesn't have any claims of authorship in it but we might say oh well it was probably written by Moses because he would have been the one who is passing on the traditions and other things so unlike Genesis Deuteronomy has lots of self attestation that Moses was the one responsible for it okay um, so let, let's get into that so what what is Deuteronomy exactly? Um, probably most of us don't have Deuteronomy memorized. Uh, maybe it's not a book that we read on a regular basis. But so if we're going to talk about Deuteronomy, what what is it? Like what kind of literature, what kind of text is it? Um, as you'll see in this chart, the vast majority of Deuteronomy is speeches from Moses. And so, um, again, that they're it's somewhat arbitrary in how you would maybe divide some of the speeches, but... You can see that he gives a speech in the beginning that's a historical background to the covenant. Oh, well, sorry, let me say this. The, the, the book is set up as speeches before people are, are going into the promised land. So they're on the edge of the Jordan, kind of they're about to inherit. It's been 40 years in the wilderness, and then Moses is giving one last final exhortation to the people. So uh, there's historical background, there's stipulations for the covenant, there are covenant blessings and curses. There's a call for covenant renewal. There's a song, final exhortation, a blessing. And so the, if, if you kind of think about, it's 34 chapters, and you look at that, the vast, vast majority are speeches by Moses um, that, he's, that he's giving to the people. Um, but there's also more um, to it. There's also, oh, and then, sorry, there's also bits where we talk about Moses' writing in it. So not just that Moses was the speaker, but Moses was the writer um, so in 31, then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi. And then in 31, 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and on and on. So there are claims to not just Moses speaking, but Moses writing in the book. But what else? Uh, there's also an omniscient narrator who's behind everything. So it's not, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, that some people say that Hebrews is a sermon, uh, but there's no narrator to, to it. It's just speaking. It's just as if it was a transcript of a sermon. Deuteronomy is a lot different. Deuteronomy has a narrator who is often setting up Moses' speeches, giving context to what he's saying, and so it's set up in that way. So there's there's Moses, but there's also a narrator who's kind of behind what's happening. So if you kind of look at this in the beginning, 
These are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. And on and on. So the, the narrator is, is through all of it. So it's not just Moses. There's a, a narrator as well. Um, there are also other voices. So that God is God speaks, God is quoted, the people speak, and they're quoted. Anyway, so there, there are several voices that are, that are going on in Deuteronomy. And then also, interestingly, that the book ends with the narration of Moses' death. And this is interesting. Did, you know, did Moses prophesy his own death? Um, so I can read some of this. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, Joshua, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So, again, that it's certainly possible that God could have inspired Moses to write about his own death in this way. Um, it would seem odd, um, I think, for like for that to happen. That it's possible, but it just seems odd. So, um, one way, one way maybe to look at what's happening is that there is a it's almost like a masterpiece painting that's been put in a beautiful frame. And so Moses, the master artist, kind of made the painting, but then he either commissioned someone or someone came after him, maybe Joshua, maybe someone else, to put the frame around the text. Um, might be one way to look at it. So all that to say is that when we're talking about authorship, um, that we need a more nuanced view probably than just to say Moses wrote everything. Again, it would be odd to say that Moses was also the narrator who was writing about himself, and I think it might be a little bit odd, more odd for Moses to be the one who is writing his death. Again, these can't happen, we're not going to put God in a box, but it just would seem odd if we're kind of thinking about it from a logical perspective. Um, so, and, but as we're, as we're approaching a more nuanced view, it's important that we don't just kind of take this as a jumping off point and kind of create a creative solution to all this and say, well, I think it could have been this. Or this is what happened. But I think it's important as we kind of proceed further to say that we want to root ourselves in what we can find about about history, what historical research, comparative study might illuminate and show us. So um, as we're going to do this, there, there are two things that I want to do because I think there's a fairly significant cultural gap between us and Deuteronomy. Um, no matter when we date it, it's a long time ago, <laughs> and there's very, very different cultures at work. So what I'm hoping to do for the rest of the lecture is to look at two, diff two questions that I hope will kind of feed our study and help us think better about this. One, how did ancient Israel, how did they view writing in general? Um, you know, that ancient Israel, they didn't come, you know, to bring sacrifices and bring a copy of their own copy of the Bible with them. How, how did they view writing? Um, just in general, not just the biblical writing, but how do they view writing? And then also, how do they think of authorship and authority? Um, and I think in both these cases, we're going to find that they were quite a bit different than us in how they in how they looked at these things. So, 
yeah, these are questions we're going to try to try to answer and think about before we move on to any particular answers. So that's kind of the setup for for what we're going. We've talked about what Deuteronomy is. Uh, if there are any questions or things that I could maybe re-clarify before we go into the particular historical element, I would love to do that. Yes. Um, you mentioned that uh, the idea of having cities and a structure like that would have been uh, very handy for this tribal group of people wandering through the wilderness. But Moses, in fact, came from exactly that kind of society. Mm-hmm. They had writing. He was educated in Pharaoh's house. Kings, da 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 all that went mm-hmm. with that. As a matter of fact, I don't think anybody has told me where Moses learned how to write Hebrew. No, probably he knew Egyptian writing first. Uh, so it, that is part of, of uh, the argument that they couldn't have done this, he couldn't have done this because they hadn't set up a city and so on, seems to me to be quite uh, unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think you're, you're seeing that, that maybe it's not based on a solid rock as they would want us to believe. No. So, yeah, that's, that's a great, great comment. Yeah, any, any other questions? Yeah, I, I thought it was obvious who wrote the book of Deuteronomy, so this is kind of a new thing. So huh. you're saying there, there's a bit of un, people are unsure who wrote the book, of, and you're getting to the bottom of it, it seems like. I, I don't know if I'm getting to the bottom. I'm trying to at least get below the surface, though. Um, but, yeah, it, it is a question. I think it's any time that we kind of face things like, wait, I, I've always thought it was this way, and there wasn't any reason for me to think differently. And then kind of you have all these other people who most of whom don't hold to a um, kind of a, certainly not an evangelical, but usually not a Christian point of view that are saying completely opposite things. Like, what do we do with that? And it's not the calling of everyone, but I think that it's, I, I think it's the calling for all of us, maybe not calling, but it's the responsibility for all of us to know enough so that we can engage well apologetically in, in, in questions about things and for such issues not to be barriers to other people's faith. I think that's at the baseline. That's not that we have to know the answers, but that if someone is like, you know what, I can't trust any of the this, we can say, well, here's a resource or here's a way to think about that differently. Um, yeah, but it also that's why it's kind of getting a little bit contentious because it says, well, if it says Moses wrote it, why, <laughs> why are we asking whether he did? And I think that's part of our even at least for the, at this point in my life as trying to be a student trying to dig into those things and say, what, what is going on? How can I think better about this? You know, you know I, 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 I saw it in the Central Library of the Study Bibles. It's like an encyclopedia. So sometimes I'll take out the other one, like say, Deuteronomy, next time I'm down there. All the commentary, like with Joan and the Whale, that, the, the Anchor Bible commentaries are very helpful. If someone wants to, they've read it, I'd like to figure out a little bit more and no one to talk to. Those are very good to turn to. Mm-hmm. The anchor, the anchor uh, Bibles commentaries. Yeah, yeah, and I'll give a couple of resources that have been helpful to me at the end. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, any other questions before we, we push on? Uh, this may be too big to, <laughs> for you to get into. But, well, I'll just ignore it then. <laughs> the uh, Deuteronomy is the fifth book and, and last book of the Torah, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess traditionally Moses is seen as the author of the whole Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, would it be appropriate for you to say anything about Deuteronomy as a a, uh, a book 
in relation to the other four books? How it differs? Mm-hmm. It is quite different. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I have much more to say than I've than I've already said, other than kind of name Deuter Nomos second law. So it's a it's not a repetition verbatim of all the law, but it's going back over things for new generation. So it's it's certainly not repetitive, or it's certainly not unnecessary, and probably and actually compared to some of the other books, it may have a that the ways that the rest of the Old Testament alludes to it and plays off different themes might be stronger than. Um, than some of the other books, so it's, it's it plays a really significant role in the whole Old Testament. But as particularly connection to the other books and questions of authorship or whatnot, I I don't know enough to really say much. I think the stuff we're going to get into has application. I was but. actually thinking more in terms of uh, genre, what it does mm-hmm. as a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting about Deuteronomy, and there's there's debate about all these things, but something I found particularly interesting is that Deuteronomy kind of functions as a sort of a constitutional document for the people of Israel, and so it's almost like this is who we are, this is what we're about in a maybe a clear a clearer way than some other uh, documents. So I think that's kind of a to me that's an interesting angle, especially as we think about our own constitutional documents and. Um, yeah, how those things play in. Were you thinking of anything in particular? Well, I'm, I suspect that most people uh, will feel most familiar with Genesis and mm-hmm. the early part of Exodus, mm-hmm. and the rest will be a great gray mass. <laughs> yeah, where did the story go? <laughs> yeah. I was tracking along, and all of a sudden, well, the story just stopped. Yeah, yeah. Um, great. Okay, I had put in a break here, but let's press on, and then we'll find a break at some other point. Is that okay? Okay. So, uh, let's see, where are we? Okay, we're trying to bridge the cultural gap. How did ancients view writing in general? How did they think of authorship and authority? And I, I may have said this, and I might say it again, but there's a lot of this stuff that we just don't know. And there's a lot of questions out there. I mean, the farther back you go kind of the harder it is to to get any clear data on some of these things. And so while I wouldn't call what I'm trying to engage in speculation, that I would say a lot of it is based in comparative cultures. And so trying to say, well, kind of the Assyrians or the Greeks or the kind of Philistines did this, how does that maybe map onto what Israel was doing? Um, knowing that, at least from our perspective, is that Israel was totally different. They had God appeared to them on a mountain in fire and gave them commandments. Um, and, I mean, that certainly has to play a, or make them different than the, the cultures around them. Okay, so we're trying to think well about this, to think well uh, about uh, issues of authorship. Um, and we said that Deuteronomy, that even though the bulk of the book is speeches Moses gave to the Israelites, that there's a narrator who gives context um, and we're trying to give some kind of nuancing about questions of authorship. Okay, uh, let's. I think we can actually glean a lot from Deuteronomy on questions of how ancient people viewed writing, um, and particularly because they were living in a predominantly oral culture. So unlike our culture that's predominantly written, uh, that they were in a predominantly oral culture, and that the way they engage with texts is different because of that. So let's look at a couple places in Deuteronomy um, to see, okay, how, how do they view text? How do they, how do they view writing? Um, 
10.2, I will write on, this is God speaking, I will write on the tablets, the words that were on the first tablets, and you, Moses, shall put them in the ark. Uh, 27, and this is Moses talking to the people. And on the day you cross over the Jordan, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write on them all the words of this law. Uh, The next one, Moses commanded the Levites, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. Okay, um, what do you notice in these passages about how ancient Israelites may have used texts? Texts. Because they weren't probably beside their bed uh, to read before sleeping. How did they view texts? Do you Inspirational think? billboard. Okay, and how so? Well, it's uh, public. It's uh, mm-hmm. tablets. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it has materiality. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, especially with the one in the middle, the plastered stones writing on. Yeah, that's, the billboard is a great example. Yeah. What else? What do you notice about? Yes. It's, in a sense, accusing that they be there for a witness huh. against you. Hmm. And he didn't, strictly speaking... Uh, put it in the ark as the Lord commanded to put it by the ark. Yeah, yeah, next to the ark. So, yeah, and it, it, you know, what do you think about the fact that it was kind of removed from their common ordinary seeing? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That it, there was a billboard in some ways, but also it was kind of removed to be kind of in the, the holy place. Any thoughts? How about authority? Like, hmm. I don't know. Do you think Transmitting everything orally, and, and then there's disagreement about what that oral law or oral tradition might say. Then you can refer back here, just put a stone. Check it out here. Yeah, you definitely could. Yeah, you definitely, definitely could. Yeah. These are good thoughts. Um, so, thinking, and we'll get more to this, but thinking more about literacy that. Um, Literacy was probably only around 10% of the population um, in that time. So at least a way to be able to read documents and see them is that probably more people than that could read, you know, a, a grocery list of, you know, five bags of wheat or two lambs. But as far as um, kind of reading any kind of text, it would probably be only about 10%. Um, but um, let's see that. Yeah, that doesn't mean that people didn't read, though. Uh, but maybe there might have been a different kind of reading. I think that the billboard is a good is a good example. I also think that some of the reading would have functioned like what we would do when we go to a war memorial. And so we go to a war memorial or something like that, and the significance of it isn't by reading each and every name. That that's not how we read it. We read it by taking in the huge amount of names of people who've sacrificed on our behalf for freedom. And that that's, that's how we read it. So we read the overall weight and significance, not by reading each and every name, but by seeing everything there. And that, that was in some ways how reading functioned for ancients, is that there, even if people weren't literate, they could read 
monuments, or they could read, you know, large plastered stones and take it in almost wholesale rather than kind of in each of the fine points. So I think this is important thinking and thinking about the authority that these things would have would have taken, especially that there were um, that writing was something that people did, but God did as well. And even when you think that they would have even treasured the responsibility of writing more because they would have said, well, this is something that God did, that God is a writer, and this is significant for us. Um, how might Deuteronomy have functioned in an oral context? Uh, here um, is another passage, um, and I'm just going to read the bold section, the bold sections. Um, so Deuteronomy you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing um, every seven years, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God again, both their children and the ones who come after them. So, again, they didn't learn God's law by having quiet times every day and individually meditating on it, but would would have learned a lot of it by hearing it read and explained to them. Uh, we see this happening in Nehemiah 8, is that Ezra and others are reading the law to them, and then they're explaining it as they go. But because they were, so in this kind of context, because they were being read to a lot, they would have absorbed it, and would have the idea would have been to have it written on their hearts. Um, later in Deuteronomy, that um, God told, tells Moses, Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths. Um, not just that they would kind of hear it once, but that it would be in their in their mouths. That this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. And a passage that's probably familiar to uh, to many of us, um, right after the Shema. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That Again, there, there's a debate of how literal this should be taken, but the big idea is that the word was supposed to be in them and around them, on their lips, on their hearts. Everywhere they looked was supposed to remind them of the word. So even if they didn't have a copy of this they were carrying in their backpack, that they certainly had this kind of written on their hearts and carrying it with them in a different sort of way. Hmm? Jews still do that. They do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and hope... They bind it on their... I think it's this finger mm-hmm. all the way up. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they have the little box in up here. They put mezuzahs on the door uh, lintel of their homes, mm-hmm. which a lot of us would miss if we were busy looking for the doorbell. <laughs> Yeah, and even the, the command is similar for us today. Not that I think that we should be walking around with the boxes on our, our heads, so to speak, but that the word should still be in our hearts, even though we're in a primarily oral or primarily written culture. Um, and so this is even how this connects to texts in other ways, is that evidence from comparable cultures suggests that when texts were passed down, since they were primarily given orally, that sometimes they'd be passed down in shorthand form. Almost like notes for a sermon. That it, they might not always be passed down in a full transcript form, but sometimes they might be passed down in a note form. So that the, because the people who were reading them knew them by heart, so they wouldn't necessarily need the full transcript to be able to to give them to read them to other people. Um, 
and we, so we don't, but we don't know exactly if Deuteronomy was ever in a short form or long form, or exactly what, um, how it got it got passed down. Um, and the little that we know from other Old Testament books suggests that Deuteronomy was often forgotten rather than remembered. Um, But the main point here is to highlight that the oral dimension of ancient Israel was a different perspective than ours. Um, I think one thing to say here is that for ancient Israel, that their reference point was the spoken word. Their reference point was what what was written on their hearts. The written word um, in ink served more as a symbolic function that communicated authority, but the written word that was on their hearts was was their stable reference point for them. And so, given that how primary, how the primacy of, of oral um, language and speaking was for them, is that it makes sense that God would send them prophets who would speak to them, who would who would give His word in a way that communicated to who they were as people. In a similar way, maybe to where us being a written-oriented culture, it makes sense that God has been gracious to give us His word in a written way that we might know Him. Um, and even know him in a way that fits with our typical ways of doing things. Um, so let's. So the last thing I want to say, and then we'll take a quick break, uh, would be that. So we don't have that much background on um, the oral word in ancient Israel. Like we we can look at comparative cultures to see how it might have functioned, but we don't know exactly. Um, and so the, I think the next question, though, we can we can start to get is how might have it been passed down? Um, how might have they have viewed texts and how might have they wanted to pass them down from generation to generation? If they were oral, if they were oral oriented, primarily oral in terms of how they would engage with things, how might texts have been passed down? Does this does this mean that, well, you know, they're oral people, we can't trust anything they say, um, or might there be something something else to think about? Uh, so why don't we take a break here, because I know that breaks are important uh, for stretching and coffee and whatnot, and then we'll pick back up in five minutes to keep to keep going down this path. Okay, so uh, so where have we been? Uh, we talked about what Deuteronomy is, as being a book that's primarily speeches by Moses, but also has a narrator who is both giving context and talking and speaks of his death. We've talked about um, the ancient Israel being a predominantly oral culture, which is different than ours, which is a primarily written culture, at least has been. Um, we'll see what social media and videos and such things do to get to that, but that's a question for another another day. Um, and so now we're talking about, okay, how might transmission have taken place? How might transmission of the text have taken place? And the reason why this element, I think, is really important is because a lot of the sort of the critical understanding of things, of, oh, Deuteronomy had to be late, it's based, or a lot of it is rooted in skepticism of any sort of legitimate transmission actually being possible. And so there's skepticism that even something that Moses said could actually be passed down 500 years in any meaningful way. And so I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a position that we have to hold to, but I think that's um, that's what people think. There's a lot of study being done in a different direction, but that's what people think. Um, a, a lot of the theory that's dominated the um, Old Testament, and especially Pentateuch scholarship um, for the last hundred or so years, or at least kind of late 
19th century through late 20th century was that by Julius Wellhausen, who advocated a, docu- a documentary hypothesis. Some of you may be familiar, but he speculated that there were several documents, uh, with all with letters, J-E-D-P, that were kind of formed and fashioned and combined into the Pentateuch. So that you know that there had been these disparate documents that then some kind of compiler kind of they combined a little bit of J, a little bit of E, a little bit of P, and off we go. And a lot of scholarship um, up until the recent past has been dedicated to trying to just dis- dissect these layers to see what's J, what's E, because they all have different dates, they all come from different backgrounds, and want to see what what's what that um, scholarship is starting to move a little bit away from that, I think, where people are starting to focus more on the whole, um, both because I think there's more of a concern for the literary arc of things, but also because I think people are seeing that all the documentary hypothesis is just really kind of arbitrary in how you determine what's this or what's this, that maybe that the authors wrote with intentional contradiction or maybe the contradictions that we see that we think are because of successive layers actually are part of the author's skill in writing. It's another conversation, but I think the scholarship is moving in a, in a slightly different direction, or at least there are more people who are open to a reading of the whole rather than just trying to do it piecemeal. Anyway, so some background on why this is important. But let's try to say, okay, well, if we're not going to stand by Julius Wellhausen and friends and and say that, oh, well, there are all these disparate documents that were formed and fashioned together at a late time, maybe in the exile, what might have transmission have looked like? So the first thing I think we have to acknowledge is that there was an oral and a written element to transmission. So this is just transmission in in general. So if they were a predominantly oral culture, that it, it might not have only been that texts were kind of written where someone has one here, they have the other one here, and they're just kind of copying, copying, copying. There are lots of different ways that transmission could have happened. Could have happened mouth to mouth. You know, that someone was speaking it to another person. It could have happened from someone's lips to paper. It could have happened from paper to someone's lips or heart. Um, that or that could have happened from a shorthand form to a longhand form, or a longhand form to a shorthand form. And there are lots of other different combinations of how transmission would have happened. And so, if we have this picture in our mind of the, the way that the, te- the only way the texts were passed down was person A is making a copy, and then they're going to pass it to person B, who then also makes a written copy. That that's probably not exactly how things how things happen, given that they're a predominantly oral culture. Probably that happened in some ways, but it but it isn't the ultimate or the dominant image that I think is helpful to have here. Now, we're skeptical of the spoken word. Um, we don't like verbal contracts. We want to write everything down, make sure it's in ink, signed, dated, with a witness, maybe even a notary if we're really serious about things. And so I think we kind of assume that, oh, well, oral transmission meant that all these people were just sitting around the campfire at night, and one story got exaggerated a little bit, and then exaggerated more, and then exaggerated a lot. The next thing you knew, that God was parting the Red Sea. Um, That's obviously a, a joke, and I don't believe that. But I think we can kind of think that that's how transmission would have looked, because we're skeptical of oral transmission. We don't trust oral words as much as we trust written words. Um, so I won't go into complete detail on this, but I think that, that that kind of view that oral transmission 
is grossly inaccurate, that that view is wrong and doesn't take into consideration the value of oral transmission that these cultures would have had and how skillful they would have been at it. Even if we think from later times, you think about like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and whatnot, that they would have memorized the whole Pentateuch before most of us were driving. Um, and so they're much better at this than we are. <laughs> and I think that some of the uh, some of what comes um, of why we would question oral transmission is because of our own hubris and pride, thinking that well we are superior and those ancients well they you know pity them they were dumb. Um, <laughs> but I think but if we take seriously the fact, especially that if God revealed Himself and this was God's word, they were passing along. This is a significant authoritative word that there would have been. Structures in place to ensure faithful passing down. Even we look at the way that, from what we can tell, that, that how the Old Testament has been passed down, that it's been incredibly meticulous in its written in its written form. And I think that it's not a stretch to assume that that didn't just happen at Qumran um, or happened kind of around Jesus' time, but that had been in the history of God's people long before that. Uh, but I think that we're actually better at oral transmission than we think. Um, so here's here's an illustration. Uh, let's say you're in church singing a well-known song, and then all of a sudden that the words diverge from what you know them to be true. Whether the words have been changed for modern adaptation or for gender inclusion, is that you're singing the song, you know what it is, and all of a sudden the words depart. And it's kind of this really jarring kind of thing, right? That you're used to singing this, and then they're singing this, and they're wrong, obviously. Uh, that... We know it's wrong, and maybe we have to go back a step or two to think, okay, what are the actual words? But we know it. We know that here's what the words were supposed to be, and this is where they went different. Like, we know that, because, or you're doing the liturgy, and uh, and you know it by heart, even if you can't, someone's going to say, hey, what's the fifth word in stanza three? You may not know it, but you've been doing it so much that you know it in your heart, and if someone was to say it wrong, you would you would catch it like that. And I think, so in a culture where people did transmit things orally, I think we can imagine that a similar thing might happen. That if someone kind of tried to do an aberrant version of Deuteronomy or whatever, I think that people would know that, wait a second, that's that's not right. There's something wrong. There's something um, divergent there. Again, we don't know, but just trying to think about how this, how this might have looked. Um... And especially if it was a sacred text. So, but how else were were texts transmitted? Uh, the other way that they, or one of the ways they were, is by official scribes. And so I'd kind of alluded to this before: is that people think that texts wouldn't have been in place until there was an urban elite who could have created a sophisticated scribal class to then pass things down. But that's the way it worked in comparative cultures: is that there were there's a scribal class who was responsible for passing things down. I mean, even we see this, I think, in ancient Egypt, like maybe 800 years or more before Moses was purported to write Deuteronomy. And so these things happened. It wasn't necessarily that this is a new thing that only happened in 500 B.C., that these things had been happening. It's just a question of whether Israel had the infrastructure to be able to do it themselves. Um, and they they worked in in different ways. And so they worked on a lot of different kind of of, of documents, so that there might have been some that were commercial documents. It might might be some that were archival documents. It might have been some that were religious documents. And there were probably different ways of transmitting the text depending on what it was. Like you can imagine, 
if a king is dictating to a scribe saying, go tell such and such that they need to do this and then come see me and then go do this, that the scribe might have had more fluidity in kind of writing writing it in a way that they would have wanted to versus if there might be a treaty that was being written or something very specific that was being written that might have needed to be passed, kind of transmitted verbatim, kind of word for word, exactly as it was intended. So all this is say, I don't want to paint the picture that right, scribes are always these completely faithful people who only did what they were told to do, but nor do I want to paint the picture that scribes are these freewheeling artists who would kind of take something and then devise something to their liking and change the whole course of human history by what they were doing. Uh, I think a, a better middle way is to say that, that scribes are more like, instead of being artists, kind of these freewheeling people over here, and instead of being kind of slaves, they were artisans who then would take, for the large part, take what had been given to them and try to transmit it in a mostly faithful way. But they might there would have been freedom in different cases to shift things, to shape them, to adapt them for a different audience. Again, we really we don't know exactly, but um, again, this is this is what we think the best of our knowledge can know. There, there's debate on this, but I think it's I don't. So all the study I did seems that it's a legitimate thing to say that scribe, the scribes in general were faithful for passing things down, and trusted that if things had an authority that they were given to, whether the king or whoever, that they needed to be responsible to that authority or else they would lose their job or maybe their head. And so there's a sense that they were faithful in passing things down. Um, the third thing, this is kind of where we're going to kind of begin to, to bring things to a conclusion, is, and this is maybe one of the things that might be more, not necessarily debated, but more contentious because this kind of gets into the Okay, what might Deuteronomy have, have been? So in the ancient world for textual transmission, the authority of the text did not require precise knowledge of who the author was. Say that again. The authority of the text did not require precise knowledge of who the author was. And again, when I'm saying this, we're looking at comparative ancient Near East culture as a whole. I'm not saying in Israel they didn't care who the author was. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in the ancient Near East as a whole, when we look across it, that the authority of the text did not require precise knowledge of who the author was. Uh, again, this is different than us, uh, right? That we don't tolerate plagiarism. We put the author's name in big letters on every book. Um, and we detest movies like the, Hol the Hobbit trilogy that think they can just change the glorious story just to make a dollar, right? The, who's, who's seen the Hobbit trilogy? Maybe you don't want to admit that. Yeah, I mean, what? They just brutalized it, didn't they? They took Tolkien's glorious work and they brutalized it for the sake of money, which is completely ironic given the whole purpose of the book. But that's a whole nother, another topic. Anyway, that we, that, and why we might, again, that's a silly example, but why we might say that's wrong is that this was, Tolkien wrote this. You can't just go change it. This is Tolkien. Tolkien, maybe that's how you say it. I don't know. Uh, but this this is how, this is what it was. You can't change it. This is his authority. The, the authority, the goodness, the value of the book rests in the fact that he wrote it. And we do that with other things as well. Uh, so on the other hand, it seems that ancients cared little for these things. Um, one scholar puts it this way, that the Bible shows a distressing disinterest in who wrote it. Um, and 
that it doesn't play to modern to modern questions um, how we want it to. That we want to we want to say where were you when you wrote this? Who are you? What were your sources that you got? But the Bible's not interested in in answering those questions for us. Um, in every case, there there are obviously a lot of cases where it does say who wrote it. Uh, one of the one of the places for that is prophecy. That in the prophets, we it's very clear that they want to say who wrote this, whose prophecy is this, and that would be similar in other ancient contexts as well, because the prophets' experience was part of what validated the authority of what they were what they were saying. But again, you look at books like Genesis, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and there's a distressing disinterest in who wrote the book. Um, you don't see kind of authors' names kind of in there. Um, that for some of those, we can maybe get closer to others, um, but we don't necessarily see a statement of "I wrote this book." That that in some ways there's a distressing disinterest in who the author of that. And I think it's distressing for us because we want the author, not necessarily distressing because it invalidates the Bible's authority. So again, that's where our culture, their culture, there's differences. And I think we need to acknowledge those things. Um, so other reasons, and I think that there were then, so also that the fact that they were anonymous in a lot of cases doesn't mean that ancients were like, oh, we don't know who wrote this, we can't trust it. That for them that they were, they understood the conventions of how things were written and didn't necessarily need a prescribed author to be able to trust it as authoritative. Uh, they they presupposed in a lot of cases that these books accurately reflected the words and deeds of their forebears uh, because of the conventions of how they would have been transmitted and passed down. So, but other reasons they might have remained anonymous is that it, that sometimes they were the creations of a group of people, whether they were the creations of, of people collectively writing as a community, or they were the process of successive generations of people adding to and developing things. They might have remained anonymous because of how um, the text would work. Um, so, anyway, coming back full circle, that for ancients, the authority of the text did not require precise knowledge of who the author was. Okay, um, so what does this mean for Deuteronomy? So how, where does kind of this land? Kind of giving background, like what does this mean for Deuteronomy? Um, in, again, in comparative literature in, ancient, in the ancient Near East, the authority of the text, when it was named, often resided in the person who is considered the fountainhead of that tradition. So if this, if kind of it was like David, for example, I mean, we see this a little bit in the, the Psalms in a sense, like that David is kind of seen as the one who's the fountainhead of the Psalms and like that it might be called, yeah, this is an example. Um, but maybe a, a, an example closer to home is thinking about Webster's Dictionary. So when you look up a word in Webster's Dictionary, that you aren't concerned whether Webster himself wrote it, right? Um, that, that That's not the point, because you trust that what's important is that it comes from the authority of Webster's dictionary. And so Webster would have been kind of the fountainhead of it, and he would have the one who initiated it, but the authority comes from the fact that it's in this collection that has been modernized and updated for the modern day. Um, and so we don't have to have direct connection to the author for it to have authority. And obviously this def this 
analogy breaks down, that Webster's Dictionary in no way, shape, or form claims divine inspiration, um, and nor does it kind of try to identify the author of each particular um, element like, or word or definition. It, it, so it's different. The analogy breaks down. But I'm trying to get us to think that we think about these things, like that we have a convention for understanding that. We don't say Webster's Dictionary, take Webster's name off, put the new editor on. We don't say that because we acknowledge that there's a fountainhead to this tradition that we're then kind of understanding that we're under the authority of. Um, so here's the million-dollar question, and I'm, I don't know. So I'm, I'm proposing the question. I'm, I'm not leading up to, and then, bam, uh, just proposing the question. Here's the million-dollar question. Could a similar pattern have been at place in Deuteronomy? Is it conceivable that someone not only added a section about Moses' death, but that also that the legal material was expanded and developed over time. Could that be part of the transmission of Deuteronomy, that a similar principle was at place where the legal material, for example, was developed and added to over time, such that someone could still say, yeah, this was written by Moses, because Moses is the fountainhead of this legal tradition. That's the million-dollar question, and um, I don't know. Um, for me, it's it's not a question of whether that would fit within the ancient literary context. I think that that would be fine, and that there, people would have understood these conventions and would have appreciated them, and that wouldn't have been an issue for them. Um, and it's also, for me, not a question of whether God could inspire a plurality of individuals or inspire um, different people to develop things at different times, that... Again, like we see in the Psalms that God's inspired lots of different people, or in the Proverbs that God inspired lots of different people to write. That we don't say that these things have to have one single author or else get rid of them. Um, so it's not a question for me of whether God could inspire a plurality of people. Um, but it is a question of whether that we're free to interpret Deuteronomy's statement, Moses wrote this law in a book to the very end. Um, whether we can interpret that in a way that allows for textual development. And I don't know. Um, I, I don't know exactly where I land on that. Um, that. It's a question I think that we should wrestle with and think about because we want to try to say, what does the Bible actually say? You know, that we're not concerned with our own pet positions, but we're concerned with what does the Bible actually say? Um, so it's not, I know this isn't a matter of salvation, but it isn't important for the defense of our faith who would claim, for example, that Moses is just a mythical figure. Um, let's see. So here's kind of the kind of going back to to this is that so if on one end it's kind of Moses wrote it unquestionably 1200 BC like he wrote it all. Joshua added a little bit. Um, which is a, a position you could take. Or on the other end, uh, this is a pious fraud. It came came much later. Uh, the question is, is there is there might be a there be a middle way that there might be a room for development over time. So, for example, that um, might some of the laws reflect like concerns because people were saying, if Moses was here, this is what he would have written about these things. I'm standing in Moses' tradition in terms of how I'm developing these ideas. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but the, the question is, is there room for development over time? Um, at the end of the day, I think that it's perfectly valid to say, look, if God could deliver a people from Egypt, provide for them for 40 years in the desert, 
and on top of that appear in fire on Mount Sinai and, then, and, and write his law on stone tablets, why would it be challenging to communicate the rest of his law to Moses? Um, why couldn't he inspire prophetic forward-looking discourses um, and ensure that they'd be written down and passed on? That Out of all those things, Deuteronomy seems the easiest. Um, that, that liberating people from Egypt, providing for them for 40 years, appearing on, on Mount Sinai, those all seem much harder than God inspiring a book and ensuring that it gets faithfully passed down. So I think from a Christian perspective, this is a safe place to fall back on in, in, our, in what, we could, what we could rest in. Um, at the same time, though, I think it's dangerous to wall ourselves off to historical considerations and ambiguities and say, well, these contradict what my faith, so I'm going to ignore them and just press on my own way. But, and also at the end of the day, for us Christians, that what we say is with Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is written by man, and we know who the men are, right? No, all scripture is God-breathed. We rest in the fact that the Lord of the universe breathed his word to us, and we have it today. And it's useful for everything, that we might be fully equipped for every good work. And that's what we rest in. The end. into a safe, gentle landing. So uh, thanks very much. It was wonderful. We still have a few minutes for uh, for uh, questions. Just um, formulate them in a short. I, I know I'm probably as close to Moses in age as anybody in this room. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just comment, question. Uh, I, I boldly, you know, Moses, if Moses walked in today, I'll be Moses. I'd say I found, thanks very much for talking so much about my uh, proposed writings. Now you kept, you often use the word evidence. Uh, since the Enlightenment, we have become the uh, reformed epistemologists. It's good mm-hmm. to know your own culture when you look at another. We're yeah. obsessed. That that's a bit too strong. Where evidentialism is our big thing. Give me evidence for any proposition you believe in. Uh, we believe in all sorts of propositions, all of us, without evidence. They're called properly basic uh, propositions. So Moses would say, the evidence for the divinity of, of, of the first five books is the fact that my community flourishes in the world and we witness to Yahweh. That's the evidence. You know, That's enough evidence for them. The church is the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, in a sense. There's a community around the world saying he is Lord. There's the first evidence, I think. uh, These books are self-evidencing. These scholars could never write the Pentateuch. They're poking along in the presence of a great text. They could never produce it. Whoever wrote it was a or them, the committee, they were geniuses. <laughs> they were spiritual geniuses. Who? I mean, you've got to keep perspective here. I mean, I, and I know I'm not adding to you what you're saying, but that's uh, that was some of my uh, uh, ponderings. Our evidentialism is, uh, if there was a huge Plato community throughout the world, we could say, well, who wrote Plato? 
What proof do you have that Plato wrote Plato? And was there really a Socrates? Prove it to me. What evidence would you come up with? How do you prove it? I got a film, I got some photos of Plato. I heard it wasn't written by Plato, but by another man of the same name. Exactly. <laughs> Just like, like Shakespeare. Anyway, there's my uh, babble. I, 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 if I'm asked to close it, I, I take, I, I, I'm presumptuous and I show it in my two seconds. But please, questions. Uh, Sheila. Uh, Bill, I'd like your opinion about um, what's going through my mind. Uh, we think of Moses as the lawgiver. I do too. Mm-hmm. But there's a great deal of narrative information in those books that has nothing to do with law. Mm-hmm. So when they look at adding historians or whoever, mm-hmm. something about the death of Moses, mm-hmm. Moses predicted his own death. I mean, he knew he was going to die, that he was not going to see the Holy Land. So if a historian came along and said, well, we should say what they did with the body, <laughs> uh, that wouldn't be unreasonable to me at all. Mm-hmm. I, it, it seems that uh, focusing on Moses as lawgiver legitimizes those parts of those books that relate to law. And the rest of it could well, very well have been added by somebody else, and I would be quite comfortable with that. What would you be? I think I would be fine as well. One of the things I think that's when you even look at this, I'm coming back to the question, but kind of deviating a bit. Uh, that's tricky about Deuteronomy is um, in thinking about what it might be. That okay, you get to the end, and we looked at some of these. Um, is this still on? Uh, it's, it's, it's fine. We we get to the end, and we say, oh well, Moses Moses wrote the whole law. Um, but Moses also says a few chapters earlier to write the whole law, to write all of it on big plastered stones. I'm thinking, did was he really saying kind of to what to write all 27 or however many chapters on? Big, that would be an immense undertaking, and so it's possible. But, sir, yeah, and so it uh, it it makes it makes me wonder. Did like was he referring to something different than the whole twenty-seven chapters? Pre- like at least there's room for wondering about that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think I'm fine with I think I'm fine with speculation about things. But it's still like, how do you interpret this bit about Moses wrote the whole thing? Um, I don't. Well, I'm not sure. Written the whole of the law. Yeah. Books are about more mm-hmm. than the law. Yeah. Any other? Oh, well, please. Is it, is it necessary that Moses started the whole thing off by physically writing everything down? Um, Moses could have, <laughs> could have uh, recited his understanding of things, and that could have been picked up and repeated. Mm-hmm. It's been observed that um, that oral traditions uh, can be transmitted for centuries very accurately because they are recited in public. Mm-hmm. And um, and the public is hanging on the words of the of the bard who's reciting the stuff, mm-hmm. and in fact will pounce on any errors, uh, even a, even a small grammatical error will be pounced upon. And in fact, uh, um, uh, as a gruesome aside, there are some cultural traditions where if if a, with a, a formula was mispronounced, the uh, the person was was killed. And so this was a this, this was a, an inducement to sharpen their their memories. <laughs> so, so I, I don't have any problem with the idea that that, that oral tradition could be quite accurate over many centuries, uh-huh. or that that some things could have been added on in explanation along the way. 
strikes me in some ways as, as kind of one of these controversies that misses the point. Mm-hmm. Dr. Davidson. Yeah. Just an interesting aside, perhaps relevant to what you said. Um, the discovery two years ago of the wreck of the Erebus Franklin's ship, the site of it was actually, uh, they, they looked there related to the oral tradition of the Inu. Yeah. And that was 100 and, well, nearly 200 years, over 200 years ago. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh huh. Are there many t- um, um, cultures roughly parallel with um, uh, Hebrew culture that are as self-critical as Hebrew culture is? Uh, the fact that Moses isn't allowed into the, the promised land, there, there's a kind of judgment mm-hmm. on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Israel's sins are remembered. Do many cultures remember their failure? Their failure as much as do as Hebrew culture does. Yeah, I it's, guess it's, it's probably a bit unique. I guess from the so I don't know from the reading I've done. It's it's interesting reading like uh, Egyptian chronicles of them conquering peoples or Assyrian ones versus the Book of Judges, which is clearly uh, much less than you know um, confirming of their strength. Yeah, and so I don't know. I think that's that's one of the questions of when we were thinking about cultures: how similar were they, and how different are they? And I guess it's a question we still ask today for us. Yeah. And it's also tough because we don't know how much literature has survived. We ha- we know what we have, but we don't know. Is that two percent? Is that is that eighty nine percent? Yeah. Well, um, just uh, that was not a fascinating. Um, look into what's going on out at uh, Regent College. Yeah. Can I recommend a few resources before the before the end? Okay. So uh, commentaries I found helpful uh, were by John Walton, uh, who actually was lecturing on Deuteronomy last summer at Regent, uh, and uh, Gordon McConville, um, who's uh, the Apollos commentary. A book that I found really interesting and that um, I think is a really interesting read is called The Lost World of Scripture. Ancient Literary Literary Culture and Biblical Authority by John Walton and Brent Sandy. Uh, So I've only read the Old Testament bits of it. It's a very, very interesting read. Uh, John Walton's actually coming this summer to Regent and talking about Genesis, uh, which he's done a lot of work on. So uh, Lost World of Scripture, um, I'm sure you could talk to Bill and he could get some copies in. If um, that's, I think that's where I got it from. Um, anyway, but I think this is kind of dives into, okay, what were ancient literary cultural expectations for kind of texts and how do we think well about what the Bible's saying or not saying? So again, I don't know if I agree with everything that they say, but it's really fascinating.